This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. God, this God that we can draw near to and know. And I don't know about you, but man, I need to hear this this morning. See, Exodus is all about who is the Lord. Who is He? It's basically a book about knowing God through personal experience. Now, it's a bit meta here at the beginning, I'll be honest, because we're reading the book of Exodus, and we see that Israel's in Egypt, and they're crying out for a deliverer because they're slavery is unbearable and God had promised and had God forgot. But that wasn't the audience of Exodus. The first audience of Exodus was the next generation that had lived 40 years in the wilderness that already knew that God delivered them, that already knew that God had revealed himself, that already had the tabernacle. But they were thinking, has God forgotten us in the wilderness? Has he left us here to die? And so the message of a deliverer, of a redeemer who was going to take them into the promised land and, and make all of his promises yes and amen, they heard the same message. And, and I would argue that on this side of the cross, us today hearing the book of Exodus hear the same message. That's why it's so meta. We're now the audience hearing it preached this morning, living even though after the cross, we're still in this fallen world. We're in this already not yet problem that, that we are still battling the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we have not yet seen what our eyes by faith have beheld in the glory of Christ. It's not yet been revealed to us. And this world weighs us down. The burdens of this life are heavy. This life is a veil of tears. It's a shadow lands. It's not what God intended. Death is not natural. It's the last enemy. And the Lord Jesus is coming back. Just like the nation of Israel on the banks of the Jordan River could sing out, my deliverer is coming in the promise, we can sing the same thing, that the Lord Jesus is coming back and He's going to make all things new and He's going to make all things right. So Israel may have felt that God was no longer concerned about them, but that was not the case. God remembers and God hears. In fact, God reveals His name in order to bring great comfort and hope. Let me just say this. In Genesis, we see a number of names of God revealed. Elohim, Almighty God who made the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 14, he's El Elyon, God Most High. In Genesis 16, he's El Roi, the God who sees. In Genesis 17, he's El Shaddai, he's God Almighty. In Genesis 21, he's El Olam, God Everlasting. But that's not all. You see, here in Exodus, when Moses meets Moses, when Moses meets God at the burning bush. We hear this name, Yahweh. I am that I am. And unlike the previous names, this doesn't restrict God's name to one characteristic. He is who He is. His nature does not change. In fact, in 3.15, He says, This is My name forever, the name you shall call Me from generation to generation. It emphasizes His covenant-keeping promises to His people. In other words, I am who I am but I'm also the one who is with you. Now, this is really important because very often our culture thinks, this world thinks, and even we tend to believe that the God of the Old Testament is an angry, vengeful, bloodthirsty God. And where do we get it from? We get it from this caricature, not reality, but a caricature of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. This mountain that burns our God's a consuming fire, yes, but is that all He is? Well, it's more complicated than that. 
And why is it more complicated? Because God's not like us. So yes, He's holy and righteous. 100% fully. Sin cannot be in His presence. In fact, we're going to see this in the tabernacle demands. It's a holy house. But He's also full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Mercy and compassion. The one whose idea was to send a deliverer. And how can this be? Because His glory consists in the fullness of all of His attributes, not working against one another, but in perfect harmony, in perfect unity, in perfect simplicity. It's not like a puzzle where there's pieces of this and that. He is fully righteous and fully holy, and He's also fully love, which manifests itself in grace and mercy and compassion. And he never changes. If I don't stop talking about who he is, I'll never get through this message. (laughs) Well, the glory of the Lord at the burning bush that we're going to see in Genesis 3 culminates in the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle in the last chapter in Exodus 40. And so the glory of God, His manifest presence among His people, this is... God taking the initiative throughout the book to reveal Himself. Who He is. Well, first we see in the chapters 1-18 to God's redemption of His people from Egypt. And what His people are doing is coming to know God. In all of the deliverance, in all of the amazing story, in all of the the twists and turns of this narrative, what the Israelites are doing is coming to know the God who delivers them, the God who claims them, the God who's put His name upon them. This is good news. Because the God they come to know is not like the gods of Egypt. He's not like the gods that were in Ur, where Abraham came from. In other words, he's not the angry, bloodthirsty, vengeful God that all the gods of Egypt were. And that the sacrificial system is not a matter of appeasing an angry God, but a means by which to draw near to this one who made them, who put his mark upon them, whose image is on them, who knows them and loves them and took the initiative to bring them near. I'm getting ahead of myself. Chapters 1 to 4, my deliverer is coming, and I probably am way too uh, leaning on um, my 90s Christian music there, Rich Mullins. Uh, there's a bone for you older people there, right? <laughs> my deliverer is coming. Well, chapter 1, we obviously cannot read the book of Exodus together, but it lets at least read verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. We see in chapter 1 the oppression of the Israelites and as Pharaoh attempts to prevent Israel from becoming a great nation, his attempts work against him. God is determined to bless the descendants of Abraham. And This is God keeping His promise to Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the heavens, like the sands on the seashore. And it doesn't matter that even the great king of Egypt tries to stamp them out. The more they were oppressed, the more we see in verse 12 that they multiplied and spread out. Chapter 2, this preparation of a deliverer, this wonderful story of God's providence in preserving and preparing Moses for his role as a deliverer. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Uh, There's some of the most comforting words in the book of Exodus 
that God remembers. That God remembers His covenant. And the reason it's so comforting is throughout the book of Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch, Israel forgot the Lord their God. Israel turned aside to other idols. Israel did not remember the covenant and the keeping of the promises and the law, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And here we see the character of God in that He remembers His promise. He remembers His covenant that He made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And He's going to fulfill it. And He knew and He hears. And dear Christian, wherever you're at right now, God knows. He remembers His promise He made to you and His Son that there's nothing that can separate you from His love that you're bound in His hands and you can never be lost. He knows. And He's going to make good on that. Chapter 3 and 4, the call of Moses. This idea of God's holiness again is central to the remainder of the book. And at the same time, we see later in Numbers chapter 12 that God speaks to Moses face to face in other words god is infinitely holy but he's also intensely personal we can draw near because he's made a way here in the book of exodus he makes a way for his people to draw near through the tabernacle through the system of sacrifices through the priesthood through the clean and unclean laws all of this was set forth not to push people away from god's presence but so that they could draw near. And the glorious news of the gospel, beloved, that we sang about all morning is that that system was just a shadow and the fullness is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a better priesthood. He's a better temple. He's a better sacrifice. Now we are clean. There is no uncleanness in Him and we can draw near with boldness confidence and approach the throne of grace and find grace and mercy to help in our time of need and so moses is called and let's read chapter 3 verses uh, 14 and 15 god says to moses this is at the Let's read 13. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am that I am. This is who God is, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth who never changes. When we say, are you holy? Yes, I am that I am. Are you full of steadfast love? Yes, I am that I am. But it's not merely uh, God teaching a, a, a doctrine of theology proper and His attributes. What He's telling His people is, I am with you. I am present with you. And I will always be present with you. And I will never forsake you and I will never leave you and I will never abandon you because I keep my covenant. I keep my promises. That's why in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, as he makes this argument that Jesus is better than all of the shadows and types, concludes that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's he claiming? Jesus is I am. He never changes. And that should bring great hope and great assurance because if he never changes for the better, it means he's perfect the way he is. And he'll save to the uttermost. And he cannot change for the worse or else he would cease to be God. That's why the author of Hebrews says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through faith because he ever lives to intercede for them. And I'm way ahead of myself. 
This is good news, though. I mean, I can't help it. We were singing this stuff. In the providence of God, it's all over the pages of what we sang, the verses of what we sang, and then we we sing, the Lord is my shepherd, Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God is the one who shepherds me, and I shall not want. And I remember being a kid thinking, why don't I want him? The Lord is the shepherd I don't want? That doesn't make any sense. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that at all. It means the opposite. I don't want anything else. I don't lack anything because I have him. Well, chapters 5 to 12, basically what God is saying is, there's none like me in all the earth. And how does he show it? Well, he starts in chapters 5 and 6 to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And this becomes a battle between the gods, as it were. The gods of Egypt and Yahweh. Chapter 5, verse 2. Let's read that together. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Yahweh. In fact, I'm just going to keep saying Yahweh every time you see Lord in caps. I want you to hear this idea that I am that I am is the one that we're talking about. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, moreover, I will not let Israel go. In other words, I'm the God who's in charge. I'm the Pharaoh. He's not the boss of me, and I'm the boss of you. Well, he's in for a rude awakening, isn't he? The stage is set right there. Chapter 7 to 12, the ten plagues come down. And we don't have time to go through them, nor do I have the interest in going through them. I heard someone tell me the other day that their pastor went through ten weeks of the ten plagues. And I thought, man, you suffered the ten plagues. (laughs) Chapter 7, verse 5, let's read this together. The the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The purpose of the plagues was to show the power of God to the Egyptians. Yahweh shows he's greater than all the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh as God. In fact, If you read the commentaries, you can see that every plague was an attack upon one of the deities of Egypt, showing that he's stronger and he's better. And Pharaoh was considered a god, and his firstborn son was considered a god. And so it's no surprise that the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, was a direct attack on the religious system of Egypt. And the more the king resists, the stronger the message comes through. It's as if God is answering Pharaoh's question. Who is Yahweh? Well, who is he? He's the almighty maker of heaven and earth. And he's the redeemer of his people. And so you see these ten plagues from chapters 7 to 12 destroy the idolatry of the Egyptians. Now, if that's all we saw, we would tend to think God is just a holy, bloodthirsty, vengeful God. But in the midst of these chapters, in chapter 12, we see something instituted that shows His steadfast love and faithfulness. What is it in chapter 12? It's the Passover. Let's read verse 23. For the Lord, Yahweh, will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Verse 27. You shall say it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads, and worshiped. You see, mercy is in the midst of judgment. Now, Israel, they, were need, they needed mercy because they were worshiping the gods of Egypt too. 
They weren't worshiping Elohim, Yahweh, the one who made them. They weren't worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God redeemed and delivered them before they ever made promise and covenant at Sinai. They were idolaters. They deserved his judgment as well. And yet God in his mercy gives them a means by faith through obedience to be passed over. And of course we know this is a picture of the great Passover, right? John 18, 28, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain during the days of the Passover feast. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, Jesus is a Lamb without blemish or defect chosen before the creation of the world. Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And communion, which we took last week, is the celebration of the ultimate Passover. Not from the plagues of Egypt, but from eternal punishment, conscious torment in hell forever because of our rebellion and our sin. And God has passed over in Christ that judgment. In fact, it's this wonderful doctrine of justification that we love so dearly. Why is it so dear? Because God declares the unrighteous to be righteous. He's just and the justifier of many. And He, in His brilliance and in His wisdom and in His incredible providence, planned for the death of His Son to be a substitute so that the righteous requirement of His character was satisfied and He can show grace and mercy and not cease to be God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christian, you are standing righteous before a holy God right now this morning. I don't care what you did before you came to church. If you have put faith in Christ, you are righteous before a holy God. And Jesus is our Passover. Well, there's none like Him in all the earth. Chapters 13 to 15, he's the one who saves. See the salvation of the Lord. Chapter 13 is where we see this Shekinah, the manifest presence of God among his people. Verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Chapter 14, God finally smashes Pharaoh and his army in the sea of reeds. And it's with purpose. Verse 4 of chapter 14, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. Isn't that incredible? There's the conclusion. What was all this about? God was going to get the glory because Pharaoh was claiming to be God. And he's going to show not only Israel, but the Egyptians that he is Yahweh. And they knew. Chapter 15, so what is the response? Worship. And I would love to have a sermon just on this song of Moses. It is glorious. And the poetry always interprets the narrative. In fact, Miriam in verse 20 of chapter 15 is called a prophetess. So we have a little bit of a hint that, hey, guess what? This might be prophecy. And what does it speak of? Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever. What does it speak of? It speaks of a day when the curse will be undone, that Eden will be restored, the mountain of God will be the place where God's glory dwells and His people dwell among them, and the Lord will reign in their midst forever. And what we know from the New Testament, in fact, when Paul says the rock that led them through the wilderness was Jesus, we know that who... Miriam is speaking of is not merely 
God the Father, but God the Son, and that He's the one who's going to deliver. He's the one who's going to save. Of course, it's veiled. We know this side of the cross. We have the end result. We know that all of these prophecies were speaking of the Lord Jesus. They didn't know it. Not exactly. They longed to look into these things. But this is the song of Moses and Miriam who's a prophetess. And we hear that God is going to keep His promises. So who is this God? Well, the one who saves and the one who delivers. This is who He is. Because He never changes. And He's determined from eternity past to save and deliver His people. That means for you, beloved, whatever you're going through, He's going to deliver you. That's who He is. He's going to be faithful to you. Now, He may not deliver you and be faithful in the way that you imagined or the way that you want. But according to Ephesians 3, He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. It means you can't ask or think too much because He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. And so trust Him. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Cast yourself upon the Lord. His mercies are new every morning. Stop turning to the idols of your heart, the idols of this world. They don't save and they don't deliver. The great idols of Egypt didn't deliver Pharaoh and his army. The idols of our lives won't deliver us. The only one who saves, the only one who delivers, the only one who brings peace and joy is God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, chapters 16 to 18, he's a covenant keeping God. This is who he is. He's the one who keeps his promises. Chapter 16, he provides bread from heaven, manna. And the glory of the Lord was with them. Verse 7, verse 10. And of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, as I mentioned, said, This glory was the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 17, God is the one who's in the midst of His people. In fact, verse 7 asks the question, is the Lord among us or not? This is in their rebellion. They were wanting to go back to Egypt and they didn't have any water and God provides them water. And the question is, is the Lord among us or not? And the answer that's supposed by the text is, oh yeah, He's among us. He provides to a stiff-necked and rebellious people even. Chapter 17 not only is he in the midst of his people he's the one who's a banner and fights for his people verses 8 to 16 the first war the amalekites they wage war on israel uh ironically the book of esther brings up god's prophecy here about the amalekites in that haman and his descendants are the last of them and they try to destroy israel and instead god in his providence raises up esther to be the queen for such a time as this, to preserve the people of Israel and to make good on God's promises. I also think it's part of Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And the Amalekites are seen as the first who experience the curse of God. Of course, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How will he not freely with him give us all things? Chapter 18, he is God Almighty. Look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Interesting, Jethro, the Moses' father-in-law who's, who's not Jewish, he comes to realize, and he says this incredibly profound statement, that I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. He's God Almighty. This is who he is. And so in their deliverance, in their redemption uh, from Egypt, coming up to Mount Sinai, Israel is coming to know who God is. 
And then the rest of the book is revelation from God establishing his special relationship with them as his covenant people. Chapter 19, God meets with Moses. Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so we, we can go back to Genesis and Adam as this first king priest who was supposed to fill the earth with king priests. Now God is saying, Israel, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I'm going to fulfill in you the promise that I made to Adam. If you'll obey my covenant. So then he establishes his covenant through the giving of the law chapters 19 to 24 we see the 10 commandments in chapter 20 and again we don't have time to go through all of them but the first table the first five is essentially love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and the second table is love your neighbor as yourself and they're given to govern israel's relationship with yahweh in other words israel is to put aside all the gods of Egypt, and to be single-minded in their devotion to the one who delivered them and worship him. It's a response to who God is and what he's done as redeemer and deliverer. In other words, it's no different than the worship we give as a response to who God is and what he's done in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship we basically say, I'm yours, do with me whatever you want. We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and the whatever He wants is a life of service, whatever that would look like as a priesthood of believers. So then the book of the covenants given in chapters 20 to 23, it focuses on Issues of divine presence in their midst, how Israel's to encounter God. For example, chapter 20, verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. To be with me. You notice that? He's, he's assuming I'm in your presence, so don't make any gods of silver to be with me. I don't want them. Nor shall you make yourself gods of gold, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. You see, in remembrance is, as I said, God remembered, Israel keeps forgetting, but God will cause his name to be remembered. And remembrance is the foundation of all of this worship. Remembering who God is and what he's done. Now, remembrance itself can be an act of worship as we're setting our minds upon who God is and what He's done, but remembrance more properly is the foundation that causes us to respond in worship. And of course, in the New Covenant, the law is no longer written on tablets of stone. It's written on our hearts so that nobody has to teach anybody, hey, know the Lord, remember the Lord. Why? Because we all know Him. From the least of us to the greatest of us, Jeremiah 31 says. And so, think about communion as this act of remembrance. What are we doing when we take the table? We're not trying to say, wow, I don't have a right to be in the presence of God. I better scrape my guts out and make sure that I've done everything I can so that I can come into the presence of a holy God. No! That's exactly not what communion is. That's what the Old Testament sacrificial system was. The New Testament communion is I'm remembering that Jesus made a way for me to come into the presence of God. And so what does it mean that we can never come worthy in and of ourselves because we're not worthy, but we can come in a worthy manner. And what's the worthy manner? Remembering the person and work of our Savior, the bread, his body broken for us, the blood 
the cup, his blood shed for us. What are we remembering? We have a Savior in heaven who's done it all, and now we can draw near to God. And it's a party. I'm not lying. It's a rejoicing and a party and a celebration. If we turn it into a big giant duty that's a, man, I got to scrape my guts clean and make sure that I'm okay, we're going back to the old covenant. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I I should have said that last week, I guess, because we had communion last week, but think about it in a couple weeks when we take it again. The institution of, I'm sorry, the book of the covenant, chapters 20 to 23, the establishment of the covenant, chapter 24, Moses and the elders. This is kind of fascinating. Uh, Turn over to 24, verse 10. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven of clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What a fascinating statement because we know that uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy 4 that uh, he tells them, you saw no form. And John 1 says, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. So what was going on here? Well, I'm not entirely sure, but perhaps it means they saw his glory, uh, as in uh, verse uh, 16, um, the the Shekinah, right? The manifest presence of God. Or or perhaps because it talks about this uh, under his feet uh, pavement like sapphire stone that they saw a vision. I don't know. Commentators speculate. They don't know either. What we see, though, and I think what's important in this is as God is establishing the covenant, they get a glimpse of the glory of God. In other words, God is drawing near to them and revealing who He is. Because every time the people of God see the glory of God, they know who God is. In fact, this is going to come up again after the institution of the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle from chapters 25 to 31, it's pictured as a means of restoring our fellowship with God. Chapters 25 and 26, it's a royal house. The materials, the abundant use of gold uh, was royalty, kingship, the purple linens, etc. Not only that, the ark of the covenant, Indiana Jones, right? The chest. It was God's footstool in the Holy of Holies. The table, the lampstand, these are common items found in every house of that day. And the provision of bread on the table and light on the candlesticks are reminders that God is at home. That God is there all times, day and night. He's home, there's food on the table, draw near. It's a picture of God's hospitality to his people. Isn't that amazing? We think of that tabernacle as something so foreign to us. A system that's been done away with and we don't even know what it's like. It just seems like something in history, but what God is saying is, I'm in your midst, I have a house here, it's a royal house, it's decorated like a royal house, but there's food on the table, the lights are on, and I'm home. And draw near. But it is a holy house. Chapters 26 to 31, the veil separated the manifest presence of God from His people because God was holy and so they couldn't draw near into His full undiminished presence. The way, of course, was going to be cleared by our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 tells us that Christ's body is the veil, and he tore the veil in half, and now we have access to God. The altar that was used to sacrifice the animals here in Exodus, it was to cover the sins of the people and give priest, the priesthood access to a holy God. 
the holy garments, the consecration of the priests, the incense, the anointing oil, the Sabbath, all of this talked about in these chapters was to be holy to the Lord over and over and over again. Set apart, sanctified for the Lord's use. Because God is holy. It's not just that He's a good old boy and come on in and we'll just wink at all your sin and brush it under the rug and we'll not worry about that. Don't ask, don't tell. That's my policy. God's not like that. No. Like I said, He's complicated. Not complicated and He has parts. God is simple in that sense. He's not divided into parts. That was a little theological joke for all the seminary students. No, God is fully holy and fully righteous, but He also is full of grace and truth and wants His people to draw near to Him. And so we see in the midst of this holiness in this holy house, turn to chapter 29, verse 42. It's a meeting house. It should be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. It's a meeting house. Life together. Together as family, as community in the house of God. This is what it was designed to be from the beginning. This complicated setup of the tabernacle was not to exclude God from His people, to, but to give them a proper approach to a holy God. The approach through the blood of an atoning sacrifice. Now the people, they reject this. They build a golden calf. Chapter 32, Moses acts as a mediator. Chapter 33, what Moses learns about God's glory after this great sin of the golden calf was not further fear of God. That's what perhaps the audience expected. But rather that He is a gracious God full of compassion. And so when God reveals His name to Moses, His glory, chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before Him, proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is who God is. Now, John picks this up. We heard it uh, this morning in the reading that um, the Word became flesh and tabernacled, skene, among us. That He was the tabernacle among us. He was the temple among us. And what did we behold when Jesus became flesh? He was full of grace and truth. Charis kyalatheia in the Greek. He's full of grace and truth. That's a translation of what we see right here in Exodus 34. That God is full of hesed, steadfast love, and ameth, faithfulness. Well, steadfast love is gracious. And because God is faithful, He's always true and always keeps His promises. And so faithfulness can be translated truth. This is what the Lord Jesus is is the fulfillment of everything promised here in his compassion the lord gives the people a mediator in moses and the glory of god is not seen directly but through the mediator through moses we see at the end of chapter 34 on the radiance of his face god displays his glory to his people but Moses isn't the ultimate mediator. In fact, the rest of the Pentateuch tells us that Moses wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah is to come. The Lord Jesus is the one who is the ultimate mediator. And that's what John is arguing in John 1. I love that it was read this morning. I was going to read it, but now I don't have to because it was read. 
and I'm out of time, so I can't. Well, the tabernacle is finished in the last five chapters of Exodus, and why the long repetition? I think the purpose is to show that the workers carried out God's instructions just as they commanded. And we see the end result in chapter 40 that the Lord approves. Verses 34 to 38, His glory fills the temple. And so Exodus concludes by recognizing the glorious presence of a sovereign God in the midst of His people. You see, Moses... He's writing Exodus, and he knew that more needed to be revealed about this covenant. The law of Moses given, but also the promise to Abraham, This what the Scriptures talk about is another covenant apart from the law of Moses. And so in the Pentateuch, at the end of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, he says the secret things belong to God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever and what he says in chapter 30 is you can't circumcise your hearts you're stiff-necked and rebellious and you can't obey the law and so god's going to send another prophet like me who's going to circumcise your hearts and that of course is in the lord jesus now what i want you to remember and we didn't spend a lot of time in exodus 19 about the fear and the trembling of Mount Sinai, but Hebrews 12 says that we don't come to Mount Sinai any longer, the mountain that trembles. We come to the new Jerusalem. We come to the children of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven. We come to a better covenant made with better promises with a better mediator. We come to Jesus. And so I don't want you to think that somehow the Old Testament, like Jesus was plan B. Or that God, you know, he tried this way first and then went to Jesus. That's not it at all. His character is consistent throughout the book of Exodus that he's the gracious and compassionate one who takes the initiative to save and deliver his people. The law was given for a time to keep his people shut up under sin until Jesus could come. Moses knew it. And Jesus is better. He's the temple. He's Emmanuel. He's the priesthood. He's the sacrifice. And what's amazing is 1 Peter 2 says we're built, being built into a temple. We are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God. Ephesians 2, in fact, let's just turn over there and, and close with this verse. It's at the bottom of your notes as well. Verse 21. Uh, let's just go back to verse, man. 18. For through Him, Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile in the context, have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God the Father by the Spirit." all three persons of the Trinity, involved in this glorious work of turning us into the temple of God. And what is the temple of God? We saw it in Exodus. It's a royal house. It's a holy house. It's a meeting house. No longer do we say we got to go to Jerusalem to meet in the manifest presence of God. Now if people want to see the presence of God, they come to us. Isn't that incredible? And we're a priesthood. And this is why we need life together. It's why we need to be serving. It's why we need to be on mission. We're left here for this purpose, to show the glory of God to the nations and appeal to them as ambassadors. Be reconciled to this God who is full of grace and truth, who has loved you, who has given his son for you, the one who will not spare anything else if he didn't spare his son the one who's pleading with you who desires none to perish, but all should come to him. 
This is why we're here. It's why we exist. This has been the plan of God from the beginning. And what is glorious is when he makes all things new, the whole new creation becomes the temple of God, the place where God's glory dwells. And you know what we do in that in Revelation 22? We reign forever and we serve forever as a kingdom of priests in the presence of God. Hallelujah, this is good news. This is what I need to hear tomorrow morning because I get to wake up and go back to work in this fallen world. And rather than looking at those things through the eyes of my fallen nature, I can look at them through the eyes of a story of redemption that says I've been placed for a purpose at this time to proclaim the glories of Him who called me out of darkness into His kingdom and into the light of His beloved Son. This is why we are here, brothers and sisters. May we be committed to this vision and this plan of God. And you know what's amazing is He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us, but He delights to use us. It brings Him good pleasure to use us. He's not reluctantly using us. No, He takes great delight and pleasure in us. And so don't feel like that, that God is just sort of putting up with you. That He's just sort of enduring you. Kind of like that, you know, that one weird relative at the extended family reunion. That's not what's going on. This is a Father in heaven who has loved you who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, who is more committed to you than you will ever be to Him. And He proved it by giving His Son. And when you doubt it, look to the cross. And what He's done is He's poured out His Spirit into your heart so that it would stir up love for Him, family affection for Him as Father, so that you cry out, Abba, Father. Well, Knowing Him, there is no greater thing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time.